You're listening to the podcast of the Doral Vineyard Church. Yeah, I'm a passionate guy, and I have turned so many people off in my life with that passion. But I have really won so many people for the Lord. In 30 years of ministry, that's a long time. That's uh, three decades, uh, 40 countries later, and uh, I've seen a lot. And Jesus appeared to me when I was 23 years old, and uh, it changed my life. I was working as a, uh, in a laboratory in the uh, Institute of, of Tropical Medicine uh, when I had an epiphany. I was purifying something called monoclonal antibodies, uh, purifying four serotypes of dengue virus was doing a lot of tissue culture and a lot of things in microbiology and, uh, and genetics, which was the passion of my life, till uh, the man upstairs showed up one day and uh, screwed it all up for good. Uh, put me on, the, uh, on a totally different path. And I think that's what an encounter with Jesus produces. You're going in this direction, and after you meet him, you find yourself going in just another direction. You know, and uh, along with that shift... Uh, it comes a divine ability to help you walk an unknown path. You know, and that's what trust kicks in. Because you have to trust. And you have to have faith. And uh, faith doesn't necessarily mean that you get immunity towards feeling uh, uh, all kinds of weird thoughts and things that come through your life. I think that faith is an amazing ability to stand in the midst of any kind of adversity. And move forward. And you know, and I say to people that fear is debilitating. And they say, do you fear? I say, I have a lot of fear in my, in my ministry life. Uh, but I learned one thing. If you're afraid, just do it afraid. That's how you conquer fear. Uh, that's just the formula. Uh, uh, don't complain. Don't compete. Don't compare because it's not going to help you. Whatever you fear, do it afraid. I had bad experiences flying on Russian planes. You know, uh, they really shake really bad. You know, they're not comfortable at all. So I was terrified of flying on planes until I moved to America about 28 years ago, and I f- flew on the jumbo jet. So that fear kind of began to dissipate. But for years, I had that fear. And uh, I figured out one day that the best way to kill that fear is to book myself on long flights. Uh, you know, and uh, that's how I've been in Europe. I've been in South America and a lot of places because I cannot swim, uh, let's say, to Colombia. I cannot swim to Brazil. I really have to fly. You know, so I really found that uh, uh, this passion sometimes turns people off because when you're passionate for Jesus, what that does is that it pushes people out of their comfort zone. And some people are not willing to walk down that path. Uh, but you cannot betray who you are. That's who I am, you know. And uh, I've really been able to uh, express the love and the passion of the Lord recent Jesus uh, to many people in the world. And I'm married to an outstanding woman, my beautiful wife, Kim. Uh, Kim and I met in Tulsa in 1992 or 93. And uh, when I met my wife, I had been in three cities in Cuba, and she had been in 40 countries. So I have felt in an amazing uh, disadvantage. Uh, but what we did is we joined forces. She had been a missionary to the world. And I have to tell you that we have had an exciting life. Uh, we're uh, church planters. We have planted three churches. Uh, the last one we planned is this one that we just planted. We're too old to do that again. Uh, we're 53 and 51 years old. Um, but when Pastor Dembo asked me uh, to come here, I didn't have to pray. Some people say, let me pray. No, there's some things I don't have to pray for. 
uh, some people can get to be very religious. If you live to know the will of God, then you don't have to constantly seek the will of God because you know what the will of God is. You know, and, um, but I want to express my heart to you. I have to say that I'm very indebted to you as a church and to Pastor Ralph and to Pastor Dembo because uh, when we opened Elizabeth in Miami, a year and a half later, we had about 350 people here. We had two services. The place was booming out of the scene. We had about 10, 12, 15,000 hours a week. I mean, coming in on the radio, doing missions, giving a lot of money away until one day the city and the uh, fire department showed up and said, you have a lot of people here. You don't have parking. You need to get out. And they gave us a few days to get out. So I just got up one day on a Sunday morning. We had 385 people with special guests. And I was praying, and the Lord led me to 25th and, uh, and 82nd. And I walked in there. I don't know how many of you remember that. I think that Pastor Osema might remember. And Pastor Ralph was in a meeting uh, uh, because uh, some mayor supported that you guys had had to move on and could not continue with the support. And there were a little bit of a bump on the finances. So they were praying for God to connect with someone. And I came, and I uh, just uh, prayed for a while in that first row. And Pastor Ralph came out, and uh, he said, just move here next week. So from a Sunday morning of having a lot of money on Sunday mornings and almost 350 people uh, to a Saturday night that we began here with you guys on Saturday night, we dropped to 44 people and about five to $600 a week. So uh, for some of you that you think that you have had a tough, I can tell you about toughness. But I'm going to tell you something. God is a, he's a provider. You cannot outgive God. Uh, I always say when it is God's will, it is God's bill. And uh, God has, how many hundred dollars do you think God has? All of them, you know, and he's a real faithful God. Uh, he's faithful, faithful, and he will never go back on his word, or he will never go back on his faithfulness. That's who he is. And he has called you, appointed, separated you for something great. And I think that you will fulfill the purpose, the reason why God planted you in the city. This city needs you. You're a unique individual. And let me tell you what you have a very unique as a church. I'm a Hispanic guy. Uh, even though I'm white and skinny and blue eyes and all that, I'm Hispanic. My dad from, uh, was from Spain, my mom uh, uh, from Cuban. So I'm half European, half South American. Uh, and I've been in Miami for seven and a half years now. I know a lot of Hispanic, great people. Hispanic culture is really rich, uh, uh, diverse, really uh, just beautiful. And, uh, but it's very uncommon to have another pastor from a church renting to another pastor, inviting him to come to speak. So when I look at Pastor Dembo, I take my hat off to him, and I look at a man that is young but knows where he's going. He's a man of integrity. He's a man that has no insecurity in him, and he's a great man of faith. Uh, so you uh, don't judge the man because he's young, uh, because uh, he's got something very powerful built in in him. And I know that the Lord would use him, and he will be able to take the church to the next level. And I also want to acknowledge Pastor Rob, who was a good friend. He was a good man. I had a great heart for the Lord, incredible man. Some of you may find him very controversial, but uh, he is an incredible man. He loves the Lord Jesus deeply, and I really have a lot of respect for him. And also, I have a lot of respect for Pastor Jose. Uh, he's always been so kind to us, such a beautiful man of God. And, you know, you guys are incredible. And Ken, always with a big smile, working for the Lord. And I have to say that I love him too so much. And some of you that I uh, do not know by name, but uh, I also want to express to you on behalf of our church and my wife our deep gratitude uh, for what you guys have done in the city and particularly for us in allowing us to be part of this building. And I want to also introduce Maurice and Betty Gomez. Maurice is one of our board members and Betty. Uh, they're from Colombia, Venezuela. They founded this church with us and uh, we love them dearly. And they were so gracious to be here with us this morning. So thank you, Maurice. Amen. So anyway, well...
in the brief time, I'm going to tell you like Elizabeth Taylor. I'm not going to take a long time here, so don't worry, baby. I mean, uh, you will not last long. Um, you know, so my pastor should say the gospel doesn't have to be everlasting in order to be eternal. Uh, but, uh, but I really have so much, and the problem with people like me is that we have accumulated so much from God that when we're uh, invited to speak in a church and we're constrained by time, we go through what I call a mental hypoxia because you're trying to think, uh, how can I deliver the best in a short period of time? So if I appear to be crazy back and forth, don't think that I do not know how to speak. Uh, it's just that I'm doing what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He had a lot to say, so he went from uh, being humble to those poor in spirit, to those uh, you know peacemaker. He didn't stick to one subject. He looked at the crowd, and so there was so much need. So he said, I need to you know, give him a buffet instead of one straight entry. Uh, so it could well be, you know, that I may appear that I'm all over the place, but I'm telling you, uh, it's on purpose. Uh, it's just not, uh, not going to catch me off guard. But I want to talk to you about something. And, Pastor, it's uh, 12.25. What time do you want me to end? By 1 o'clock. That's a challenge, and I'm going to prove to be good to it. Uh, but there is a subject that I want to bring to you, and I can speak six or seven weeks on this. Uh, and I want to talk to you about the power, the redemptive power of forgiveness. Because I found it to be the skeleton in the closet in a lot of churches that cannot move forward. Is there's a deterrent, there's a governor that stops people from getting healed. And I'm going to tell you, it's not about conquering the world. It's about conquering ourselves. It's about getting whole. If you were the uh, head coach of the track and field team in America, you would not dare to send your top competitors to the Olympics to run a race with their feet full of blisters. You would not do that. Because even though the person might be resilient, committed, strong, uh, the pain would be terrible. The race would not be enjoyable. And what would happen is that in the body of Christ, we, hold, we have a lot of wounded healers. We have a lot of people called to do a lot of good, but they're in so much internal pain that they cannot do the work of the kingdom in a, in a proper way. You know, so I always say everywhere I go that one of the ingredients for revival is wholeness, is healing. It's not about getting healed from a sickness. Because a lot of people that are sick is not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. You know, it's something from the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the body. You know, so sometimes a great ministry is hindered by the fact that there's something internally that do not allow them to reproduce and communicate the life of God, which in turn is what really sets people free. You know, you and I are vessels. We're instruments. That's who we are. We're, you know, uh, all this theology today tries to make you and me very special, and I understand what they mean by that, but the only person special in this room is Jesus. And we are just instruments trying to accomplish His work and in the process asking, Lord, help me, mold it. Uh, mold me, teach me, uh, encourage me. There's anything I need to surrender as your feet. As Pastor Dembo was saying, the hand up here is just a way to express, you know, uh, you are my creator and I'm your creation. And uh, if, if there's anything that I'm missing here, Lord, that I may not see. Even David said that, deliver me from secret faults. Because sometimes we do not know when we have a secret fault. And it's hindering the move of God. There's a big difference between revival and awakening. And some people have a hard time articulating that because what happens in America today is that a lot of people talk about a revival that they only see it 
uh, in books, in commentaries, and they're happy and content to talk about how it happened somewhere else, and they never know what revival is. They've never been part of that. They read a lot of books about it. They've seen a lot of testimony from missionaries, but aren't you tired to talk about it and you want to leave it out? You want to say, I really want to be part of this. I just don't want to reproduce somebody else's story. Uh, so there's a difference between revival and awakening, and here's something very interesting. Revival is what happened in the day of Pentecost amongst the believers. A bunch of guys got to the upper room in an act of mere obedience to the Lord Jesus, and all of a sudden they were filled with the Holy Ghost. They were with so much boldness and power to move ahead, and that's incredible. What happened? You know, the believers got on fire. But a spiritual awakening is what happened among the people of Israel when they came up to the disciples and they said, Brothers, what can we do? So in revival, we get caught up with the fire of God. We set ourselves on fire and we tell people what to do. In a spiritual awakening, people come and ask us, What should we do? And that is a big difference. You know, now you can have the body of Christ can be sick. By, by and large in general, and yet you can have isolated pockets of revival. I mean, that's very possible. There's no problem. Now, in order to have a spiritual awakening, which is what we need in a society, then the body has to be healthy. Not just one good church in the city. Not just three good churches in the city. By and large, the body of Christ has to move in a way of health, of strength, of understanding what the kingdom of God is all about. The reason why sometimes I get to be a little bit controversial in some circles that we go is because people like me that have a ministry breakthrough to bring uh, 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 this sort of uh, awareness to the body of Christ, sometimes we are resisted by a very vicious, difficult religious spirit. And you know what religion is? Religion is about God, but without God. It's a lot of definition, a lot of things, but the life of God is not there. You cannot heal the sick. You cannot heal the brokenhearted. You cannot help people move on, for let's say, to the next level. And there's a big difference between counseling and deliverance. Counseling is reminding you of the obvious. Deliverance is breaking the power of sin and corruption and adultery and fornication and pornography over a person's life. That's why we don't church. We don't do counseling. Mauricio meets with couple. I don't do it anymore. You know, because I have counseled a lot of people, and 10 years later, they walk in the same path. You know, so I said, these are sincere people that they cannot get free. And it has nothing to do with counseling. They need an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. They need the blood of Jesus. And they also need to really come to grips with the fact that when you serve the Lord Jesus God, sometimes it's going to offend your mind in order to speak to your spirit. And... That's why some of us are really resistant in circles because we usually speak to paradigms. And in churches, a paradigm, I don't know if you have heard that term before, but a paradigm is an idea that has not been challenged. People was given an idea, they entertained it for years, sat on it for years, then it became a stronghold. So when your pastor gets up and he's praying and seeking direction and God tells him, go down the path, and he speaks that word for the first time, he encounters a wall. So most revivalists, in order for us to really bring, bring about the life of God, we are caught up in doing 90% this and doing things that were done wrong. So then it gives us 10%. Can you believe that? You spend 90% of your time working hard to pay for 10% of your vision. And that's where the average pastor and leader is at. They spend 10, 15, 20, 30 years consuming themselves and doing what has been done wrong in order to enjoy at the end five or six good, good years of ministry life. That's not fair. To also to you. 
Because just me and you, we want to see people getting saved. We, want, we don't want to see transfer growth. Somebody was in L.A. and moved here and find the church. We want to see people getting saved, people getting delivered. Well, what has to do with love? A lot. It has to do with love a lot. Because when you really love God, when you really love people, you become a gospel machine. Witnessing, sharing good news. We had a homeless ministry at church. And we had a team that used to go every Sunday uh, early, like at 9 o'clock, like at 7 o'clock. Feed them and then pack the van and bring them to church. And every single Sunday, I was bothered by this image. We had 300 people in the sanctuary and we had a group of 20 homeless on one corner. 20 homeless, and I watched some people loving them, shake their hands, and other people didn't want to get close because of the way they smell. And I had a hard time with that. I just was, no. and one day I just told my wife, take me to downtown, I'm going to be homeless tonight. I put my shorts on, my flip-flops, my shirt, and I grabbed a piece of cardboard, and as she dropped me off in the middle of the homeless, I said, get away from me, leave me alone here. And I saw a line of people sleeping on the floor, and I took a piece of cardboard between two guys, one black guy and one guy that was Hispanic. Then I found out with a long beard. And I put my cardboard in the middle and lay there. And some guy said, are you new here? I said, yeah, yeah, you can say that. And then when I talk, the guy that was next door to the black brother looked at me and said, Pastor. And when I turned, was one of the guys that was picked up over Sunday church, and he come up to me crying. and I said, Pastor, this is not a place for you. He began to cry for me. When I saw that man doing that, my heart melted. I just couldn't because somehow in this guy's head, he thinks I'm special or I'm better than him. You know, so here's this guy that has the most powerful revelation of God than a lot of believers because he's recognizing that I'm a man of God, a representative of Jesus. And he loves Jesus so much that he doesn't want Jesus to be in that condition. And here's a lot of Christian pastors and ministers that have a poor revelation of Christ. They don't understand that because you did it to one of those little ones. You did it to me. That's how, that's how sick this whole thing is. I don't know if you understand. You know, you said, but how... Folks, the kingdom of God is like head standing and looking at things backwards or upside down. In the kingdom of God, promotion comes through service. Exaltation comes through humility. Life comes through death. Receiving comes through giving. This is all just backward. You go to the bank and they tell you in order to, to have money, you have to save money. The kingdom of God tells you, give and it shall be given to you. You know, this is a system that works different, but we, we have been operating the church as a church for years, not as the kingdom of God, which the kingdom of God is a force that goes outside. What has love to do with that? Well, there's a, three stories in the Bible, and I'm going to really speak really, really fast. You know, so I hope that you understand my accent. How many of you understand the accent? Okay. Well, in Miami, if you don't, if you don't understand accent in Miami, this is not the city for you. <laughs> I tell you that. But listen, don't feel bad. The first time I came to America, I went to a little town in Texas, and I could not understand what they were saying because they were talking with a yield that ain't uh, the, the beautiful one that in it, you know, uh, and they, they were talking in so many slangs. You know, man, I feel like I've been real hot and put up wet. Oh, my God. It's going to be till hell freezes over. I had no idea what that meant. 
because when I was learning English, they told me the British type of English that is very well, the verbs are, you know, like conjugated. I didn't talk in slang, so it took me about a few, few months to really understand. Even my wife, every time she threw at me, the ain't it and wouldn't it, and, uh, you know, I just couldn't get it. You know, so, uh, but if you live in Miami, you have to be familiar with the accent. Uh, now we're familiar with Trump's accent, huge, you know, so. Boy, that's another story to tell, but we're not going to go there. So uh, let me read to you, and if you can put it up in the screen, I would appreciate that. It's uh, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And uh, I want to draw your attention to one Bible verse to tell you in 30 minutes three stories. And pray that you will get the best out of it. Listen, if I say something you don't like, here's how you deal with that. Put it in the trash in the garbage. And then Pastor Denver will fix it this week. But... If there's something that you really like, treasure that and put it in your heart. Uh, you know, because uh, sometimes when you eat a good meal, my mom cooks a great meal. But my mom is, she's Cuban, so she eats with a lot of, you know, onions and things like that. My boys love the flavor, but before they eat, they pickle the things out. You know, and, and at the end, they eat the meal. So there might be some things in the stuff I'm going to share with you that you may not like. What I say is get it out of your plate and go straight to the substance. Because it's going to be a blessing to you. I have to do that with speakers I bring to our church. I also have to pick stuff I don't like and connect with the good. I mean, the substance. So here on John chapter 4, you know the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But I'm going to read you about six verses. It says that when Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Listen to this. When Jesus began to be controversial. At some point in life, you're going to be controversial. When he heard, there's already controversy. You know, he said, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. And what he's telling you, how, how, what a great lesson to walk away from controversy. When, that's the number one thing we need to do because Jesus didn't call us to controversy. He called us to speak truth. And in the truth, there's going to be some controversy. But we have to be wise with how we deliver he said he left Judea, and then he said he had to travel through Samaria, and you know he had to travel through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey. Listen, if Jesus was worn out by his journey, don't you think that you're going to be tired some point, at some point in life? All of us, as we build something great for God, sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we want to drop the ball. But I'm telling you, don't drop the ball. Do what Jesus did. He took a break. He sat by the well. But what is interesting is that Jesus didn't take a break from ministry. He sat. His moment of sitting was a ministry opportunity. Have you ever thought about that? Because so that, you know, I need a sabbatical, which means I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to start going to discotheque. I'm going to disconnect. No, a sabbatical doesn't mean that. I don't know if you understand that. A sabbatical doesn't mean you compromise or you believe your principles. You know, a sabbatical simply means that you slow down. And that's what Jesus did. But it really says that, uh, and a woman, and it was about six in the evening, a woman of Samaria came to draw water and said, give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say, good afternoon, it's good to, will you be so kind? None of that. Straight to the point. Jesus was like the, thermo, uh, he was like the uh, dermatologist. Straight to the pimple. I mean, he, I mean, he was going straight to the point. 
he really didn't beat around the bushes. Give me a drink because I'm, I'm thirsty. And here it says, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. But now hear what I want to share with you. How is it that you, and this applies for the state of this nation today, a divided nation. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or in other words, Jews and Samaritans do not get along well. This is a cultural divide between us. Jesus answered, oh, if you knew the gift of God and who is trying, who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he will give you living water. If you knew the gift of God. What it's really saying is the only thing that helps different people connect is Jesus. The only thing that breaks down the cultural divide is Jesus. It's the gift of God. There's nothing else. But even though Jesus was the gift of God to us, the gift of Jesus to us, what do you think it is? Forgiveness. And that's the only gift he expects you to pass on to others. You know, when we talk about forgiveness, people don't like forgiveness. That's a real F word. And why? Because it's a great gift. Forgiveness is an amazing gift, not only that you give to others, that you give yourself. You should say to people, when you forgive, when God forgives you, I mean, when God, you're set free from a dead, but when you forgive others, you break free from a prison. And people don't realize that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and wishing the other person would die. They don't understand the damage it does to themselves. My wife and I, when we got married, we learned that we had to learn the art of forgiveness. Not as an action, as a lifestyle. Peter said that. Lord, how many times would I forgive my brother that trespasses against me? And Peter was generous. He said, seven times? In other words, he told the Lord Jesus seven times in plan. I'm generous. I'm not willing to do it twice or three times. Seven. And the Lord said, well, thank you for generosity, but I'm not seven. It's 70 times seven. When Jesus said, it's a lifestyle. And then Peter said, increase your faith. And what is really telling you? It takes faith to live a life of forgiveness. Not to the action of forgiving, but the attitude, the lifestyle. And when you live that lifestyle, what it means is nothing hits you. It rubs off you. I don't know if you understand. And that's one of the pillars of Christianity because that's the gift that Jesus gave us. Forgiveness. Now, unforgiveness is the number one, along with pornography and sexual deviation. Those are the number two things that hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in churches. Those two things are the two enemies, not the devil. He's been defeated under authority. I mean, actually, the devil gets a lot of credit for things he doesn't do. You know, those two things right there. I was in a conference, New Man Magazine, years ago. 1,800 men. And we made an altar call. Anybody strong here with pornography? We thought it's going to be about 100 people coming up. We had about 1,800 people in the room. About 1,800 people came forward. And these are the men that tithe, lift their hand. You know, these, these men are husbands, our church workers, our ministry. Our people are very nice. They will give you $20 if you need to. They fix your car if you need to. They dig in pornography. And then we're trying to figure out what's going on. 
Then we blame it on the principalities of Miami, on the powers of Miami, on the strongholds of Miami. Folks have been in cities, South America, Europe, the world where you talk about principalities, and there's revival. There's growth. I was in a church in Colombia. Pastor Ricardo Rodriguez invited me to be there. Had two services on a Friday. We walked in the service, 25,000 people walking in the first service at 4 o'clock. Then the door opened on the back, 25,000 people left the building, and 25,000 people came in the building. 50,000 people in four-hour service. And Bogota, there's a lot of principalities there. You know, but they had dealt with the issue. So there's something that's very interesting here that really draws my attention. Jesus when Jesus said, you know, if you knew the gift of God, what is really said, woman, I don't care whether Jews and Samaritans are divided. I really don't. Because Jesus is not part of the culture. Jesus has his own culture. That's what it is. Jesus is not part of the hatred, the resentment, the hypocrisy, and the cultural divide. Jesus is a counterculture. Contrary to the culture. They just consider the Samaritans a lower-class citizens. But Jesus is not part of what people feel, think, and believe about other people. Jesus is a counterculture. You know, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel of reconciliation. That's what it is all about. You know, and the kingdom of God is a, is a totally different, it's a crazy idea. It's just a crazy idea. It's an unbelievable idea. When I got saved, I was about 15 years old. And I was in high school, 16, 17, 18, and I was in Cuba at that time. And there was a, two colonels, Javier Santo Diaz, and the other name was Avelino Martinez, in the military. They accused me and my family of being Christians or being pro-Americans because my dad was a fan of Ronald Reagan. They accused us of every evil thing that you can possibly. They went to my high school, ridiculed me, embarrassed me in front of the, the student body. It was about 1,500 people. Then at the age 60 and a half, they come into the military service to fight in Angola. I'm not going to fight in Angola for a communist regime against Americans that were fighting there. I'm not going to do that. You know, they were ready to ship me to Angola at age 16 and a half. Giving military training, all this stuff. And here's the guy that is pro-American, is Christian. I'm not going to do that. So in order to break me, one, time, one day they, would, they brought me in front of a medical team. You know, there were four doctors, about 25, 26 years old, recent graduate from Hidon uh, Medical School in Havana. Beautiful girls, sexy as we call them in Cuba. And three other guys. And then they stripped me naked. Naked in front of those girls and those people about the distance from here to there. Then they had me walk up to them. They said, turn around, bend over. I mean, spread. They shake me all over. I mean, that's just to embarrass me and to break me. But they couldn't break me. So for years, I had so much hatred towards this man that I could not get out of my head the idea to kill this guy. And I would fantasize about how to kill him. And I would watch American movies. I remember the first time I saw The Godfather, how Robert De Niro wraps up his hand in a towel and shoots the guy on the head. I was fantasizing about killing the guy on the stairs of his house. I, you know, can you believe that in the mind of a teenager for years, constantly, day in and day out? Until Jesus showed up. Until he showed up. He forgave my dad. But I forgot that I hated the guy. I forgot that. But one day I'm walking out on a street that has a dead end. It's a closed street. 
to visit a friend. And I tell you, God has a way. And one of the doors of the little apartment swings wide open. And somebody walks out of the door right in front of me. is this lieutenant colonel. He was visiting somebody, Secret Service guy, in that block where my friend lived. And I saw the, and the Lord said to me, it's not a coincidence. It's me. Go up to the guy and forgive the guy. I thought, forgive the guy? He's the one. If he asks me for an apology, I will. But how can I? And God said, go and forgive the guy and tell him. So I went up to the guy. The guy got so nervous. You know, the eyes were this big. He got, and I shook his hand and I said, Javier, you know, I really forgive you for all this stuff. You owe me nothing. I want you to know that. I'm a new man. I follow Christ. I don't want anything in my heart. I forgive you. And he couldn't utter a word. He gave me his hand, though, but he couldn't utter a word. Now, why I'm telling you that? One of the stories, very interesting stories here in the Bible, is the story of the thief. The two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. I believe that that's the thief that got saved, that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, is the greatest man of faith in the Bible. When you hear people talking about man of faith, who do they talk about? Abraham, Moses, actually in the story of Abraham and Isaac, they do a disservice to Isaac when they talk about faith and they put it all on Abraham's account. Because uh, Isaac had to have a lot of faith when he saw his father getting to chop off his head and he still went on. I mean, nobody talks about his faith. You know, sacrificial faith. You know, someone is about to sacrifice something dear, that's a great act of faith. But someone is about to let himself sacrifice for an ideal, that's a greater act of faith. But no one talks about Isaac. Because we're not a nation that likes to talk about sacrifice too much. We're, we're too comfortable. So, the thief, when I caught that in the Word of God, and I know this has happened to you. How many times you have read the same Bible verse for 20 years, but one day you get up, read the same verse, and the verse becomes a life. has a different meaning. And you go, you have your aha uh-huh moment. That's what I call a revelation, when you finally see what you've been observing for years. Hagar was dying of thirst in the desert, not because there was no water, but because her eyes were closed. The Bible said that God opened her eyes and she saw a fountain of water. You know, so most of us that are having a hard time in many things in life, it's not because there's not a provision made by God. It's because we're, we're blind. We don't see it. The veil is there. You know, we're so entangled by the cares of this world that we cannot see the real resources that God has in front of us. So that happened to me with this Bible verse. You know, God asked me to forgive this man without him saying, one, I'm sorry. Well, when you look at the story of the thieves, something happens that made this thief, made this uh, this great confession. Picture Jesus being betrayed by his nation, by his disciples leaving him alone, by Judas betraying him. Nobody's there when he's in the peak of his suffering. And now he has been pierced, his hands, his feet, tortured, ridiculed, taunted from the cross by high priests, by soldiers, by the populace, by everybody. And the first phrase that Jesus uttered at the cross is this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Now, have you noticed how long that phrase is versus the other phrases? I'm thirsty. It is finished. You say, why is this phrase so long? Well, 
People that were the cross crucified, they really do not have a lot of energy. Because people at the cross died, not because of tetanus or because of they bled to death. They died of suffocation. That position with arms stretched out, what it did is it weakened the diaphragm, those muscles. And people, uh, 10, 12, 15, 20 hours later, they could not breathe. You know, that muscle was so weak, they could not inhale and exhale. So in order for them to do that, they had to push themselves up through that nail in the ankle bones. And then when they exhale going down, they had to hold themselves by the nails. So Romans used to tie their arms with ropes so they would not flail. So what it means is that Jesus and people crucified through nails spent about 24 hours doing this. That's what Romans did not punish their own people with crucifixion. What they did is they shoved their head off. It was very quickly. So that was an amazing suffering. So Jesus is suffering in an incredible way. And the first phrase out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what to do. First thing Jesus recognized, most of the things that are wrong that are done to us are done by ignorant people. They do not know the pain they cause. They do not know. And the apostles knew that very well when that crowd of people stood in front of Peter when Peter spoke the gospel. And they were so convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit that they say, brethren, what can we do? And Peter said, I know that you did it in ignorance. If Peter would not have had the revelation, the ignorance of the people of Israel, instead of bringing them to Christ, he would have accused them. He would have been harsh with them. So here's how the story goes on. The story goes on this way. Father, forgive them for they do not know what to do. What is interesting is that the Romans didn't apologize to Jesus. The high priest didn't apologize to Jesus. The disciples that left the word not at the cross said, Lord, I'm sorry for doing this. None, none of them apologized. In his lifetime, before he died, he never received an apology. Yet he moved on to forgive without asking for an apology. So when you have this idea that in order for me to forgive, I have to, somebody has to apologize to me, that's the world idea of forgiving. Because Jesus forgave without people apologizing. He forgave the church before the church apologized. When a person has the nature of Christ, that's the type of forgiveness you walk into. And I know that's hard to digest. Very hard. Difficult to digest. But because of that attitude, forgiveness without an apology, what the Lord asked me to do with that man, the thief catches that right away. He realizes, my goodness, who is this man asking for forgiveness to his taunters, his enemies, people? I just, Lord, Father, remember, forgive them for they don't know what to do. And immediately he turned to him and said, Lord, first of all, he rebuked the other thief. When you catch a revelation of the nature of Jesus right away, you learn how to discern right from wrong, good from evil. You're never in the middle of the road anymore. It becomes black and white. And that's the first thing he did. He rebuked the other guy. Shut up. You deserve what you're going through. But this man, what has he done? Then he turns to the Lord and said, he said, Lord. Didn't even say Yeshua or Yeshu. Lord. He lowered himself. Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you ever known about the implications of that phrase? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you ever really sat down and do an introspective 
analysis of the, what that phrase means, what is locked in there. That's like peeling an onion. Makes you cry. Have you ever gone in there? When I went in there, here's what I found. This is the greatest man of faith that ever lived. You know why? Because of that phrase. He said, Lord, remember me. First of all, that thief was the first person in the whole of Scripture that believed in the resurrection of Christ. He said, remember me. You will not say that to someone that knows about to die. When he said, remember me, it's because he knew that guy is going to come back. He's not going to stay dead. Death will not be able to get a hold of this guy. No way. This guy cannot be holding by death. He's going to come back. So the first thing is he acknowledged, Lord, implying that humility is mission critical. And you know why humility is mission critical? Because pride and arrogance, which is the opposite, is like bad breath. You're the last person to know you have it. Lord, remember me. First of all, in all humility, that's what he said, in all humility, I acknowledge that I'm nothing. I sin. remember me when you come into your kingdom. What he's saying is take me into consideration because you're coming back. Remember me, the first one to believe in resurrection. This is when you come, was the first person that believed in the second coming of Christ. It took years later, 17, 20 years later for the apostle Paul to start talking about the idea of the rapture as it comes in and the second coming of Christ and began to explain that there was an event that was going to happen. But that thief caught it before he was taught, before it was explained to him. He caught it. He caught, he said, God justice de- demands that his son comes back. He has to come back and show the world how this is going to work. And sometimes we don't realize that the spiritual mess we create is even hard for God to fix. Why do you think that Jesus is coming back to reign for a thousand years? It's going to take him a thousand years to fix this mess. And sometimes we think that we can fix in 10 minutes things that we have created in 20 years of behavior. Come on, guys. You know, but the first one to believe in the second coming of Christ, and it's only there. He said, when you come, what? In your kingdom. The first one that believed in the idea of the kingdom of God with a king, a crown king. And nobody talks about the faith of the thief. How did he arrive to that revelation? He saw what nobody had seen before. The son of God forgive him without an apology. So what that really tells you Forgiveness is a powerful force. Board. the way I want to finish this with you today, some of you here today may come in church on Sunday. It happens in my church. It happens in any church. Come for about a couple hour service to compensate for a whole week of things that have happened. Hurts, wounds, bad words being said, all kinds of things. And we come in good faith thinking, how can God fix my week in two hours? But we get deceived because he will not do it in two hours. Actually, it's not going to happen in two hours. So sometimes when I speak into our church, I constantly talk about how do you deal with those issues of personal relationships that hinder all this stuff? How do you do that? You know, and I was last week, I was at a, one of the larger church in Florida, was having uh, a big leadership conference 
in Pigeon Forge in Tennessee, and they invited me to be the main speaker. And I was, I, I was there consulting with them and speaking to them leadership for three days, three mornings, talking. And we got into the subject of this. We're talking about this. And I was telling them, how do you do when there has been an offense? First of all, in the kingdom of God, you're going to be offended many times. And outside the kingdom, you're going to be offended many times. So if you think that there will ever be a season in your life offense-free, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I have to tell you that. You know. So I told them how you fix it. I said, here's what I've seen God do in his spiritual economy. Because sometimes we believe that God is morally obligated to hate the people we hate. We believe that. We believe that if I dislike Jose because God loves me, he has to dislike Jose. And we cannot pray that something bad happens to Jose. No death, but something bad. So Jose would interpret that as God teaching him a lesson. I, I get redemption from the bad that happened to him. That's how crooked and evil that thinking is. And all of you have thought that. Why, why I know that? Because I've been through that too. I mean, everybody. Let's be honest. You know, now, there's a lot of things I cannot avoid to come to me. But I have the moral responsibility to, to kick him out of my head. It's like Martin Luther says when he was in the middle of the Reformation. There's nothing I can do. He, because he was having a lot of thoughts. He said, there's nothing I can do to keep the birds from flying around my head. But what I can do is to keep them from building a nest on it. You know, so there's a lot of thoughts that I know they're not mine. Because when they come, I don't like them. That's how you discern a thought that is yours and a thought that is not yours. How come I just had the thought, you like, no, then it's not yours. It came from the outside, and it will set you free. Because a lot of believers live in a horrible condemnation because they have bad thoughts, and they think that's who they are. No. If you don't like those thoughts, that means you do not want them to land in your head. That speaks of your holiness and your desire to please God. Now, if you begin to entertain those thoughts and delight on that, then you have a major problem. So I was telling them, in the economy of the kingdom of God, when God is trying to help people, you know, this is how it works. Let's say that Jose and I had a serious disagreement, became a, a rift, and I was very harsh with him. And he was offended. I heard him. But after we have been harboring this thing in our hearts that is bothering him and I and is consuming both of us, one day we realize, gosh, this is terrible. Jose begins to feel bad. His prayer life begins to be hindered. Everything. He don't hear the voice of God as well. And the same thing happens to me. Cannot pray as much. I cannot hear the voice of God. It's terrible. And I realize I have to deal with that in my heart. So here's what the Holy Ghost does. I'm going to end with this. The Holy Ghost does this. He begins to deal with Jose in his room and with me in my room. With me that I'm the offender, he begins to soften and tender my heart towards asking for an apology. Going to Jose say, Jose, I'm so sorry. I just made a mistake. I did something really bad to you. You know, and I should not have done that. You know, I am so sorry, Jose. You know, I, and let me tell you this. If you ever offend someone, don't do this apology. Okay, man, okay, I'm sorry. I know, I know. Don't do that to that person because a stiff apology, a stiff apology is a second offense. You know, the person that has been hurt is not looking for your compensation because she or he was wrong. She or he is looking to be healed because he was hurt. So to go with that hypocrisy, okay, okay, I know you're right. I'm sorry, man. That's a second insult. 
So that's the attitude I should have with Jose because the Holy Ghost is dealing with me. Just like that. You know, Jose. Now, that's how God deals with me, to be humble and ask forgiveness. But in Jose's room, guess how God is dealing with Jose? He's dealing with Jose for him to accept my apology. So he's dealing with both of us, with me to go be humble. Say, I'm sorry, with your heart in your hand. And with Jose saying, please accept the apology. That's how you find redemption. Because it takes two people to create a problem. It takes two people to fix it. That's really how it works. Some of you here may probably not expecting that I would bring this word. You know, but that's what, when I walked through the door, I had a message. And God said, no, I want you to share about this. And regarding, I mean, honor, the other two stories I will not be able to tell because this other share is about church hurt. There's about family hurt and friends hurt that I don't have time to talk about. It's an example of Job and the example of Joseph in Egypt. But that's a whole series. But the way I want to finish today is uh, this way. When you leave this room, think if just anything that Hispanic guy with an accent spoke, after you get all the onions out and all the spices that you don't like, go straight to the thing that really hit home with you today. And if there's anything among some of you, or when you go home with your wife or husband, which those are the greatest offenses that we have in churches, and we never acknowledge that, you know, if you have that with your wife or husband, you know, just go and deal with that. I say, for Christ's sake, how can we get this together? How can we make it work? And you know what? Humility. Have you heard that Bible scripture in the book of Psalm chapter 46 that says deep calls unto deep? You know, you know what it really means? A good attitude always provokes a good attitude on somebody else. A good deed always provokes a good deed. When you approach anything with humility, you disarm the arrogant. That's one thing. And honor is key. Somebody asked me for honor. I said, here's what I learned about honor. The Ten Commandments in the Bible, the first four commandments is about honoring God. Read it and you'll find out. The sixth last commandment is about honoring people. Every sin in the Bible can be traced to a sin of dishonor. Every promotion in the Bible can be traced to an act of honoring people. And the way to learn there are three levels of honor. First of all, honor people that are underneath you, the ones that have less, less wealth, less reputation, less status. Uh, honor those people because they are at the place that you used to be at one point in your life. They're crying to get out of that hole the same way you cry out to God, get me out of this hole. Then the second level of honor, honor those people who are your level because they're fighting the same demons you're fighting to emerge and to go to the next level. Honor them. And then the next level is people that are above you. Honor them because they are at the place where God placed them. And that's the place where eventually one day you may want to be in life. That's how it works. So thank you so much. I'm not going to pray. Uh, Pastor Dan will pray for you guys right at the beginning of the service. But I want to let you know I love you. Thank you so much for allowing us to be part of this ministry. And uh, you have a great pastor. You have a great group of people here. And please mark a difference because you are Jesus' people. Mark a difference. I love you guys. Thank you so much. 
hope you enjoyed this message from the Doral Vineyard Church.